Siéntate en mi cara, deja que mi lengua te dé Kimbara, Kimbara, Kumba, Kimbamba, tu pum pum, mami, mami, no me va a matar. Como sea que se vea, sé que me va a gustar. I'm not acting hello, bro, I'm just owning what I know. So instead of places over, I'll give you the chacaron, 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 ni 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 ron, chacaron, chacaron, ni 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 ron. Welcome to the Weekly Review. Ah, there's me mumbling. Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman today. It's Friday, July 3rd, 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're on Ramitash Ohlone land. And there are a lot of ways folks can learn more about the land that we're on. And one way is to go to ramitash.com. And that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com. Also, I want to encourage folks to donate to the Segorate Land Trust, and that's uh, set up in the East Bay, but anyone can donate and anyone can check out that page. If you type in S-H-U-U-M-I Land Tax, you'll be brought to the page. And also, there's another mutual aid fund com that's called the Indigenous Mutual Aid Fund, and it, you can find it by going to indigenousmutualaid.org. And also, one more thing, the show we played last week, so last Friday, which would be on June, the last week of June, whatever date that is, June 26th, maybe, yeah, maybe, okay, um, I played speakers from a caravan protest that happened last Saturday, and again, it's difficult to keep, even more so difficult to keep track of time these days, however, it was 
put together by the Do No Harm Coalition and other organizations, and it ended up in Presida Park, and there are many speakers who talked a lot about uh, Ramitash Ohlone people and San Francisco, um, what we know as San Francisco, and a lot about the history, and I encourage folks to check that out. So if you go to mutinyradio.fm and go to the podcast archives from last week, Friday's Weekly Review, um, you can hear many of those speakers. Thanks. All right. I've, I'm ready to talk a little bit this week. I didn't talk too much last week, and I've got together some news stories, some action items that folks can take, and um, I'll be playing a panel discussion a little bit later on. So thanks so much for tuning in. I'm, uh, uh, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, difficult to find words sometimes. Even a lot of feelings, a lot of very strong feelings and strong opinions. And at the same time, it can be difficult to put it into words and to communicate everything. So perhaps later on in the show, I will get to a rant of sorts and I think Probably when I start reading some of the stories, it'll be, it'll be there. And of course, we're living in a world where, at least in this country, things are very, very backwards and upside down in terms of the funding for militarization and punishment instead of help and healing. But that's that's capitalism, and we're watching it deteriorate in 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 front of our eyes and taking countless lives, oof, as as it happens. However. Uh, do not despair. I mean, despair. I'm not. I'm not one to tell anyone what to do. That's not my style. However, there are ways that folks can take action, and that's part of what the show's about. Hopefully, a big part of it is just sharing information. And there's a lot of ways that we can work together to change the systems that are in place and have been in place since before a lot of us got here. <sighs> so, the one big thing is policing, of course, which has become even more and more militarized over the years, and it didn't even start off as anything helpful in the first place. It's been folks protecting property instead of people and causing a lot of harm, and that's an understatement. So I'm going to go through some of these stories here, or stories, uh, item, I don't know. I'm, I only had one small cup of coffee this morning. That's what I'm going to put it down to. I did meditate. I did journal this morning. Got here on time. It's, uh, it feels, it should feel like an accomplishment. So this is there's um, an organization, uh, Defund SFPD, and they have shared some info for ways that folks can show up to help apply pressure to people in positions of power to defund SFPD. And there's a rules committee meeting that's happening, and the there was an original date for it, but it's been moved, and so now it's going to happen on July 9th. And I'm gonna pull up a calendar so I can provide the day of the week, because I find for myself that's very helpful. I know uh, it's difficult enough, as is, keeping track of the time and the day and the month and the year, where we're at, what's going on, what's my name, who's, what's going on. And so the more information, uh, maybe the easier it will be to remember things. So, all right, so today's July 3rd. So July 9th would be this coming Thursday. So this Thursday, July 9th at 2 p.m., um, there's going to be a Board of Supervisors Rules Committee meeting. And the committee will be discussing an amendment to remove the SFPD minimum staffing mandate from the city charter. You can speak out in support of removing the requirement and call out some problematic language. The meeting begins at 2 p.m. 
they have a, a RSVP event on Facebook, which you can RSVP to and share. And there's also events. I've been taking my time off Facebook because it's for many, many reasons. I love the folks I'm connected to on there. And also the platform itself is super evil. So I've had to kind of pull myself away a little bit. However, if you um, type in defund SFPD, you should be brought to this event. And it's hosted by the Afro-Socialist and SOC Caucus from the DSA SF, as well as the SF Public Bank. So again, defund SFPD, minimum staffing public comment, make your voice heard, more information on the Facebook invite. And let's read, let's read more because there's a lot of different ways that folks can show up. They have talking points as well as call-in instructions and background information. And there's a website for that, and that's bit.ly forward slash July 9th, with the number 9, defund SFPD. Again, uh, it's a Google Doc you'll be brought to. So again, it is um, bit.ly forward slash July 9, defund SFPD. And you can also access the uh, Facebook event page by going to bit.ly forward slash RSVP July 9, defund SFPD. There's a lot of information in this doc. Um, background and purpose, instructions, script options, how to um, get help, chat with live support volunteers, and a lot of information there. So please do um, check that out. And it looks like the help desk where you can chat with live support volunteers will be posted on July 8th. Um, the way to call in for the call information is for public, co co public comment call in, and that's 1408 418 9388. The meeting ID is 146-539-7752. And I'd imagine that this, this is also being shared. Let me just double check before I uh, quote that. Yeah. So if you go to the event page, they have much more information. And uh, you can also find out more resources for defunding SFPD and holding supervisors accountable. And then there's a new website. And that's defundsfpdnow.com. And you can also follow them on Twitter and Instagram at defundsfpdnow. The time for inaction is over. The time for solidarity is now. So big thanks to all the folks affiliated with Defund SFPD Now and also all the activists and organizers and community members who have been fighting against <sighs> the police brutality um, in this city and across the country and across the world for generations to get us to this point. Um, next up is topic that's similar. I've yeah, I've put together some articles here. And this is from uh, Prison Culture, which is the, the Twitter handle of an activist who we will most likely be hearing from a little bit later, who's one of the co-founders of um, Project Nia and um, Chai Task Force, and um, you can follow them on Twitter at Prison Culture. And uh, this came yesterday. Uh, school boards in Minneapolis, Seattle, Denver, Milwaukee, Portland, Rochester, Oakland, and Madison voted to officially terminate contracts with their local police departments over the past few weeks. So. Um, positive news and again schools shouldn't have had police in the first place however um, just trying to send some motivating positive energy out there to the folks who are looking to do the same in your areas okay 
next up. This is some bad news. Um, oh, I mean, a lot of the show is bad news, unfortunately. But, you know, all right. Find ways to fight against it. AC Transit, and this is a tweet from at I do the thinking. Uh, AC Transit is proposing the elimination of bus lines, new combined lines, major parts of low-density East Bay, yes, Oakland and Berkeley hoods, to lose bus service or reduce frequencies, major bus lines to be combined into one. We knew it was coming. And they have a report in this thread. So you can find it on Twitter. You get go to Twitter, and it's uh, Daryl Owens at I do the thinking and they provide a lot of information um, about that I've also shared it on Twitter you can follow me at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-N-E-R we'll be getting to I think more of that later because we're also looking to eliminate muni lines which is awful and my whole thing is that in my time of living in San Francisco and in the East Bay bus drivers have continuously been able to help get me to and from home, work, school, friends' houses, events, wherever I was going safely. Meanwhile, police officers have, and in no order, they have uh, threatened me with arrest uh, when I have defended unhoused people. They have assaulted me when I've tried to prevent an arrest. They have protected neo-Nazis and white nationalists who have come in from out of town to start trouble. That's just uh, a small piece of what the police department has done versus what bus drivers have done. Yet why are the muni drivers and AC Transit, why are, and those are also folks who, especially in San Francisco, I know, are having difficulty being able to make enough to live in the city, yet they actually help people. Teachers, too. Yet the police get disgusting amounts of overtime, and they also have to pay out of pocket when they inevitably cause harm to people, and there's a lot of lawsuits against them. So it's like it should be... It should be a no-brainer to defund the SFPD and put that money back into public transportation. It should not be shrunken. Public transportation should be expanded. I'm one of those folks who looks at some of those. There's that I mentioned this quite a bit, but there's a map of like what BART could have been from the 70s, and every now and then I just look at it and I'm like, oh wow, that could have been nice. Because folks like myself, I don't like to drive. Um, I would rather, for numerous reasons, I think there's definitely enough cars on the road. That's one thing. And if everyone had access to, you know, accessible public transit, that would just, it would be better for absolutely everyone. You know, people complain about the traffic, but if we had better public transit, then it wouldn't be an issue. And I also blame the automobile industry quite a bit. So there's, there's that. So um, fine, let's find ways, and I'm, I'm putting myself out there too. I want to help find ways to, Again, put more money into public transit and make it more sustainable. Okay. Next up is a uh, recession online class from the Center for Political Education, which is an awesome organization. They've done a lot of great live events here in the city, and I've learned quite a bit from the panel discussions that they've hosted. And Rachel Herzing, who's associated with the center, also came in as a guest a few years ago, again, hard to keep track of time, but I was introduced to her through James Tracy, who's a teacher I had at City College, and I've just learned quite a bit from this organization. So if you're interested in taking a three-session online class exploring the relationship between long-term organizing and periods of rebellion, you can do so by going to the Center for Political Education.org. And this class will be taking place on Thursdays, July 13th, 30th, and August 13th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. 
and I'll read a little bit about what the class offering is like. Uh, uprisings around the world are amplifying demands for relief from state violence and structural racism. How are the gains won during these protests related to organizing campaigns that precede them? What can protests make more possible for future organizing? Join us for a three-part class featuring movement practi practitioners and scholars who will share their insights on the relationship between long-term organizing and periods of mass uprising. Classes will take place every two weeks, July 16th, July 30th, and August 13th over Zoom and meet from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Space in this class will be limited. If you're interested in participating, please take a moment to fill out the application form by Friday, July 10th by 5 p.m. Pacific Time so we can get a sense of who you are and why you're interested in taking this class. The information you provide will help us tailor the sessions to the group's needs while everyone should feel free while everyone should feel free to apply for this class. So again, if you go to Center for Political Education, you can find more information there and also follow them on Twitter. And they've also shared a link about the class there as well. Next up is uh, tomorrow. And by next, uh, next in the list of e my email, which I do to create a list of things to talk about during the show. So again, we're going back and forth in time of upcoming events, but just uh, my goal for this is that uh, everyone who listens, there's at least one piece that's something that of someone something that wow, I'm gonna slow down a bit. There's at least one piece of information or something that someone comes away with that's like, oh, that sounds cool. I'm gonna try that out, or I'm gonna tell someone about this, or something. Just trying to plant as many seeds as possible. So the next thing uh, on the list <laughs> is from IndieBay. You can find it at IndieBay.org. Sunday 7-5, which is July 5th, <laughs> Labor Fest 2020 Walk, San Francisco General Strike. So I'm going to click on the link and share a bit about this event. So this is happening on Sunday, July 5th from 10 a.m. to noon. It's a teach-in, uh, and it's organized by Gifford Hartman. Uh, this is a free internet Zoom-based event. You can be anywhere to participate. Please visit the LaborFest 2020 website URL to register and to receive a Zoom invitation to the event. 85 years ago at this location, a great battle took place by workers and residents of San Francisco against the police and National Guard. We will look at the causes of the 1934 general strike and why it was successful. How was the strike organized and why are the issues from that strike still relevant to working people today? We will also view some of the key historical sites in this important U.S. labor struggle. Please visit the LaborFest 2020 website URL to register and to receive a Zoom invitation to the event. And for more information, go to https forward slash forward slash laborfest.net forward slash event forward slash walk dash san dash Francisco general strike. Etc. Etc. If you go to indiebay.org, you should be able to find it there. And I believe I've also shared it on Twitter at some point here again. Yeah. Okay. Um, I will be playing a panel discussion that was put together by Haymarket Books a little bit later, and it's a, called "Abolish Policing, Not Just the Police." That's available on YouTube for the full. It's maybe like an hour, forty minutes or so. So we'll be playing a good chunk of that later on in the program. I also want to recommend the documentary Disclosure, which is on Netflix. It's really fucking awesome. It's a great documentary, and I'm so appreciative to Laverne Cox and Sam Fetter and all the folks who are affiliated with the film and made it happen. It's just so good. It's really, really good, especially for my the trans siblings out there. It's just oh, it's so fucking good, and I'm just really grateful. It's a very healing and informative documentary, and I have never seen anything like it. 
So grateful that's out there. Also, the Frameline Film Festival, which happened this past weekend, and it was online since theaters are, are closed, they had a Q&A with many of the people involved with the film. And I'm going to, I've been in touch with Frameline about um, how to get access to that so I can play the audio portion of the Q&A on this show because it was just so informative and so enlightening and also just about, especially as, you know, for trans folks, especially in the entertainment business and any other industry, how dis discrimination is so prevalent and they really provide concrete ways that's really easy for cis folks to show up and um, integrate trans folks into the business. So that, among many other things, uh, really appreciate Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, there's an article. Um, I don't have the full link to it right now, but it's um, from Sam Levin, who writes for The Guardian. It's on Twitter. L L.A. Sheriff deputies have been widely accused of harassing and threatening the families of those they have killed. I think we can kind of uh, let that sit and, yeah, it's what cops do. I'm going to move along. Um, I, I don't know why I'm moving so fast with this because I, I recognize every story here. There's just so much and there's a lot of, I don't know if weight is the, the right word I want to use, but there's just so much to it. And um, just kind of pushing through, I guess, because this is all also happening simultaneously. And again, as I said, I've said before, this is a, a fraction of what's happening right now in the world. This is, uh, this is only things that I have heard about. Um, that I'm able to share on the show today. So it's just, a, again, a fraction. And for folks who are listening out of the country, uh, this is just, you know, this is life in the United States for a lot of people. This is what's happening. It's, you know, state violence on such a wide level, and it's been so normalized in this country with so much militarism and so much funding going towards prisons and jails and war abroad. It's all connected. And now we're, I mean, a lot of folks have already felt it here, certainly, with police forces and criminalization of homelessness and criminalization of poverty, criminalization of people's bodies and violence against black folks, against undocumented folks, women, trans folks, it, it's indigenous folks, sex workers. It's like the majority <laughs> of the country is under severe threat of violence on a daily basis. And it may not look as obvious as some violence that we're seeing in terms of physical violence, but there's so much of it that's through policy where it's evicting people from their homes or having student debt be so high, including you know nurses, people who are out there helping people are still in debt. It could be about them, the violence against uh, environmentalists and folks who protect the environment and through trying to push those pipelines through burial grounds pipelines which inevitably spill oil and contaminate the earth and the water supply. Lack of building and keeping infrastructure accessible for people. People hoarding wealth, which in, in itself is violent. And while we were talking about the idea of Muni having to shut down permanent but permanently shut down bus lines, and I don't like the word permanent here, I don't like that at all. I don't want to speak that into being at all. Folks have mentioned that there's a high percentage of people in San Francisco who are billionaires. However, 
I've, I'm of the opinion that if you actually cared about people, you wouldn't be a billionaire in the first place. Because how can you have that much money and know that there are folks out there with nothing, without food or, or shelter, and knowing that you could, could solve that in a second if you chose to? I don't think billionaires listen to this show. I highly doubt it. Um, but maybe some folks know billionaire. I don't know. But the idea is that uh, a lot of things could be remedied if folks just shared the wealth. It's not that fucking hard. And also, of course, the tax rates have, uh, you know, the wealthy used to pay like a higher tax rate, much higher. And that's why there was better infrastructure and school was covered. I mean, oh, goodness. Oh, and then healthcare. Don't get me started on healthcare. Don't get me started. I can't believe I said that. Okay, speaking of healthcare and the lack of healthcare, especially for folks who are incarcerated, excuse me while I throw this microphone out the window. I won't throw it out the window, but I am fucking angry. San Quentin prisoners launch a hunger strike amid explosion of COVID-19 cases. And this is from Democracy Now. You can find it at democracynow.org. It's from July 2nd. At least 20 people held at San Quentin State Prison in California launched a hunger strike Monday to protest inhumane conditions inside. Over 1,100 men have tested positive for COVID-19, and that's a third of San Quentin's population. One person has died. Among those testing positive is incarcerated journalist Juan Moreno Haynes. He appeared on Democracy Now! in March, warning about the likelihood of a COVID outbreak in San Quentin. And Juan Moreno Haynes has said, so we live in such close proximity that in the 13 years that I've been in San Quentin, if I see somebody with the flu or sick, I'm going to get it. I already know this. I'm going to get it. There's no avoiding it. So um, there is also, in relation to that, there is pressure being put on Gavin Newsom to um, do something about this. And let me see if I can find the link. Yes. Okay. It's a toolkit, uh, Google Docs. Um, how can I activate? The Google Doc is sometimes kind of hard to find. And let me read through it, and then I will find a way to share it with you all and tell folks how to access it. So it hashtag Stop San Quentin Outbreak, Day of Action. Let me actually try right now as I am talking. I've got several tabs open. Complete mayhem here. Complete mayhem. I've got like 20 tabs open. Okay. How about I uh, take a music break for once? Um, I'll take a music break, and then I'll get back with some more information about how folks can uh, use their energy, their words, whatever they got, to uh, help out folks at San Quentin. Oh, the music. I didn't uh, talk about the music I played. The first song is by Lil Coochie who is a local artist. You can find uh, Lil Coochie's music on Bandcamp at lilcuchi.bandcamp.com. And this is called, that song was called When, S when the SIP is Over. And following that was a song um, from a playlist. I will read it by, by uh, Kitty Striker's playlist on Spotify, Songs to Burn Flags To. I thought that would be appropriate for this show. And that was... The song New Radio by Bikini Kill. I'm going to go through this list and play a few more songs. Some I know, some I don't know. So I'm going to see if I can play some of the songs I don't know. This one is called Sissy by A. Uh, Nako. And that's A-Y-E a is the first name, N-A-K-O. My apologies if I'm mispronouncing. 
and from the album Silver Haze. So we're going to pl- listen to some music, and we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned. And having a little bit of trouble here. So, um, again, thanks so much for tuning in to Mutiny Radio. I'll do a little bit of a plug while this site loads. You're listening to Mutiny Radio, mutinyradio.fm. We've got shows here every day of the week. If you're interested in doing a show here of your own, you can do so. Go to mutinyradio.fm, send a message to Pam, who is the station director, and you can get set up. We've got a couple different uh, options available for slots. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty great. So, oh, I was trying to determine if that sound was coming from inside or outside the studio. It's coming from inside the house. It's outside the studio. Great. Here's some music. We'll be back in a bit. That's a different like song, a but slave listen. or something.
they couldn't be themselves and be the hero too. Your turn is now. Yes! And it's not gonna be easy. Sometimes we might feel lost on the way. But if we persevere, all oh, this life sure will be. Niggas watch pretty boys rule And they be bitching about the homos Cause they got the FOMO But they wanna taste the pussy so good So we can hit it from the front We can get it from the back Probably suck up on my dick goo Better than they chick do Making all the straight boys I know I'm making it hard for you And we never Try to hurt no one We just love That ain't wrong baby What you know now Our blood's been spilled By your hands and I've had Street fighter. I'm trying to love you, but you're making wishes so hard. Stay trying to help you clean your mess, cause you done fucked it up. And even though you might not thank me for your happy life, just know it's great that makes the world so goddamn bright. Now let me tell you about a time the universe was mine. Yes, it told me to deliver this message. See, all the ones that you adore, the ones we should ignore, cause they be putting chains on your destiny. All right, welcome back. I really enjoyed that song. That was Gay Street Fighter by Keenan Lonsdale. Before that, we heard Sissy by A. Nako. And before that, System Fucked by Leftover Crack. And again, this is from their playlist on Spotify by Kitty Striker. Songs to Burned Flags to. Okay, so we left off with 
information about San Quentin and ways that folks can show up. So if you follow, if you go on to Twitter, it's the best way to access this information. If you follow Sam K. Lou, and that's at S-A-M-K-L-E-W, uh, Sam shared a toolkit 13 hours ago, and there's a link there to Google Doc that I'm going to be reading from. So if you'd like to share that with other folks and or look at it while I'm talking and or look at this a little bit later, uh, please follow Sam on Twitter. Great. So it says hashtag, ooh, hashtag stop San Quentin outbreak day of action. And that day of action already happened, um, which was on June 28th. However, there's lots of ways that folks can still participate and there are social media posts that folks can make and uh, Instagram posts, etc. They have just a lot of information and facts that they're sharing with folks. So if you're on Instagram, you can share information there as well, as well as on Facebook. Again, they have a lot of information. So it's probably best for folks just to access this toolkit and then see which format or which platform works best for you. And they're also encouraging folks to call Gavin Newsom and I'll be providing some phone numbers for folks in just a moment. And they also have email and call scripts. So this is something that folks can do today, tomorrow, preferably today, anytime. Uh, one is send an email or call to Gavin Newsom, public comment form. They have a link on the page. It's a little bit, eh, it's like govapps.gov.ca.gov forward slash gov forward 40 mail forward slash. Or you can call 916-445. 2841. And again, all this information is included on the toolkit. If you scroll down towards the bottom of the page, uh, or the third, fourth, fifth page, sixth page, seventh page, it's a, it's a toolkit, so there's a lot of pages. But if you scroll down, hashtag Stop San Quentin Outbreak Day of Action Toolkit, email call scripts template, they have a list of the phone numbers and email addresses of folks people can contact. There's Ralph Diaz, who's the CDCR Secretary, Assemblymember Mark Levine, Senator Mark McGuire. Um, Mike McGuire, excuse me, my Mark McGuire, the baseball player, is not a assembly member or a senator, last I checked. This is Mike McGuire. And then there's a mayor of San Rafael named Gary Phillips, Dr. Diana Tosh, who's the undersecretary of healthcare services. They have a whole, they have like 13 different folks, including fuckface, excuse me, Scott Wiener. Sorry to confuse him with the president's name. Uh, I mix them up sometimes. Okay, so you can call this, the call script, my name, you say your, what your name is. Uh, I'm calling because I'm concerned about the safety of the incarcerated community at San Quentin State Prison and across all California state prisons in light of the recent COVID-19 outbreak at San Quentin. Over 1,000 people are now infected with COVID-19 due to the CDCR's negligent transfers of incarcerated people from the California Institution for Men. I urge you to fulfill the following demands of incarcerated people at San Quentin. One, CDCR and Gavin Newsom must grant mass releases now to stop the transfers between prisons three provide COVID-19 testing to 100% of the population Four, limit exposed staff from working in units with no known positive cases five expand credit earning opportunities six provide free essential goods including hygiene supplies stamps etc seven provide free televisiting privileges eight expand free phone calls they also provide a template for the email as well um, they also have news coverage of the Day of Action um, from KRON, The Chronicle, SFist, Fox 10, KPIX, Univision, SFGate, etc. 
the appeal, which is a good website to check out. And at times they also have resources of like articles and as well as data tracking. And they also have flyers that folks can print out. So th again, there's a lot of information here. So if you go to Twitter, follow uh, Sam K. Lew, and that's S-A-M-K-L-E-W. Uh, this was posted 13 hours ago. So that would be, all right, we're almost at one o'clock. So just a little bit, uh, okay, shouldn't be that difficult. Let's see if I can find the exact time on here. So 10.50 p.m. on July 2nd. You can find the tweet that way, and the toolkit is attached. If you click on the link, all that information I shared and more is there. So please do show up if you're able. Really, really appreciate it. All right, next up. Do -do -do, I'm just going through it, going through it, and I'm sure I'll process this all later and be like, wow, that's, uh, uh, wow, okay. Ugh, ugh. my summary of, of everything. Okay, moving down. Moving down the list. And okay. The Right to Recover program launches today, which was yesterday, I think, when I shared it. Uh, when I read it. Poth when I read it? Yes. When I read it yesterday. I'm also of the opinion that uh, folks, myself included, uh, when we don't know what's going on or we make a mistake, we should say, hey, oh, I don't know what I'm going, wh what's going on. I made a mistake. Imagine what the world would be like if that were to happen. If folks, especially people, uh, politicians, for instance, were be like, oh, wait, I don't know. Or, mm, I'm wrong. Uh, can you imagine? That would be something else. Cool. Okay. So the Right to Recover program launched yesterday. And this is from a tweet from Hillary Ronan, who is on the Board of Supervisors Mission District here, San Francisco. If you are a San Franciscan who tests positive for COVID-19, you no longer need to worry about how you will pay for rent and other essentials. San Francisco will provide two to four weeks of income while you recover and keep others safe by quarantining at home. So again, on Twitter, where I find a lot of info, follow Hillary Ronan at H-I-L-A-R-Y-R-O-N-E-N. And again, this was posted on July 2nd with more information in English and in Espanol. So please check that out. And next, oh, next up, People's Breakfast Oakland is a great organization folks should donate to if you're able. You can also follow them on Twitter at People's Break Oak. Last week, uh, they provided free COVID-19 and antibody testing for the people of Oakland with at MYC, or MyCOVIDMD, the Twitter handle, in East Oakland, downtown Oakland, and then the house, houseless camps in West Oakland. In June, they provided 3,000 meals to the people of Oakland, as well as 500 new shoes and clothes. So again, please uh, donate, if you're able to, the People's Breakfast Oakland. You can follow them at People's Break Oak, and they have more information. Um, if you go to linktr.ee forward slash PBO, and there's information about how to get tested, um, bail assist money, you can Venmo them, Cash App, PayPal, etc. And also if they have any items that they need, you can also uh, support them that way. And yes, okay, next up, July 1st. I don't know why I'm doing a movie, you know, in a world where everyone's in prison. It's called America, excuse me, North America, or uh, United States. I don't think we're that united, though. We're united in victim blaming. Okay, July 1st. Pay attention to what is happening in Madison, Wisconsin. We successfully pressured the school board to remove cops from schools, but the state retaliation has been severe. 
Nearly all organizers who led the protests have been arrested, some on incredibly exaggerated charges, 20-plus years. So this is, again, I found this on Twitter, an activist, uh, Nat, excuse me, Not Colloquial, and that's at N-O-T-C-O-L-L-O-Q-U-I-A-L. And they shared this yesterday, I believe. So, um, yeah, so just a reminder for folks who are protesting that the police repression is quite intense. Although I, folks already, I mean, I don't know, pretend to the choir, I guess, we know that. However, just sharing information about what's happening to people who, I mean, the police are also just kind of proving everyone else's point about how they need to be abolished if they're just going around attacking people and arresting people on, you know, fake charges. Okay, next up. Um, ooh, okay. This is from the more from the EFF, which is a great tech organization that helps helps us uh, preserve whatever privacy is left on the uh, in the online world, as well as other issues and fighting against surveillance. So it's an article uh, at a moment when more Americans are speaking up about reforming police. A Senate panel is wrongly pushing forward with a proposal to let law enforcement control our online lives uh, and stop earn it, which is I guess is the name of it. And they have shared this on Twitter. You can follow them at EFF. They shared this on July 2nd at 7.31 a.m. And they provide a link to the article, act.eff.org. Now let's learn more about this. Um, take action. You can take action. Just put in your email address and find your, represent or your physical address and find your representatives. Senators, f I, I, I want to call all these people fuckface, but I realize that's not a, it's not original. It's not really that creative. It's not descriptive. And it's not specific. So I need to work on that. If you have any good um, ideas for other names I can call some of these people whose names I will mention, please let us know. Again, at R-O-M-A-N-R-A-M-E-R. Find me. I mean, yeah, sure. Send me some info. Great. Senators, Lin Lindsey Graham... Uh, and Richard Blumenthal are pushing who's a Democrat, so we all know that Democrats are also just not helping the situation, are pushing forward with their so-called Earn It Act. It reminds me of Book It by Pizza Hut, although this one seems to be evil, while Book It was awesome. I don't know if other folks from the, who were kids in the 80s remember that, but you got to read books and you got free pizza out of it. And you got a cool button that was like a hologram. Those were the days. Okay. So this is something that's just bad. Um, their so-called Earn It Act, a bill that will undermine encryption and free speech online. The bill will create a new government commission. <sighs> I'm rolling my eyes with that groan. The bill will create a new government commission dominated by law enforcement agencies and give it unprecedented power over websites both large and small. Attorney I also want to call him a fuckface. Attorney General Bill Barr and the DOJ have demanded for years that messaging services give the government special access to users' private messages. If Earn It passes, Barr will finally get his wish. Law enforcement agencies will be able to scan every message sent online. The Earn It Act, which is S3398, is anti-speech, anti-security, and unnecessary. A key Senate committee is scheduled to debate the bill next week. We need to tell senators to reject this dangerous proposal. And then you can also learn more. Oh, lordy. Do we want to learn more? I guess so. The bill uses crimes against children as an excuse to force Internet platforms to follow a set of best practices set out by a government commission. If owner, And I'm just going to comment that 
in Oakland, for instance, it was the police who were involved in trafficking of kids. So it's kind of like uh, – it's like, no. Okay. If owners of the platform don't follow the new rules, they'll lose legal protections for free speech. It's easy to predict how Attorney General William Barr, who will dominate the commission, will use that power to break encryption. He said over and over again that the best practice, in quotations, is to force encrypted messaging systems to give law enforcement access to our private conversations. The Graham Blumenthal bill will would finally give Barr the power to demand that tech companies obey him or face serious repercussions, including both civil and criminal liability. That will put encryption providers in an awful conundrum either face the possibility of losing everything in a single lawsuit or undermine their user security, making all of us more vulnerable to online criminals. The Earnit Act is also an unconstitutional constraint on free expression. The government must not be allowed to create new rules mandating how websites manage user-generated content. We wouldn't let Congress demand that newspapers cover certain stories or slant the news. Even though a lot of them fucking do. Uh, Similarly, lawmakers shouldn't make rules that require websites to screen and censor user speech. The Graham Blumenthal bill cynically uses crimes against children as an excuse to hand control of online privacy over to federal law enforcement agencies. Congress should put a stop to it. All right. I'm going to put in my uh, info right now so I can send um, my representative a message like this is dumb don't do it and also why are we fucking constantly wasting our time telling people in positions of power not to do something evil it just feels like oh so much time is wasted so much okay so my representatives are diane feinstein and kamala harris okay all right and you can edit the message so it's unique to you. So I'm going to do that, I think, while I'm playing the next music. So I'm going to do that right now while I'm playing the next music break. I'm not going to wait to put it off. All right. Let's, here's a song called Get Your Riot Gear by Five Iron Frenzy. Let's listen to this song, and I'll play a couple more, and then we'll be back uh, after that. Stay tuned. Something stirring in the air, a victory. Time bomb ticking to explode, three, two, one, and go. Something passes, something not. Billy clubs, I'll call the SWAT. Rabbit dogs without a leash, is this how you keep the peace? You want riots, wear your riot gear. You want violence, then shoot some tear gas in the air. It seemed you only served yourself, protecting your neck. Controlling with fear, menacing and threatening. 
Smelled of power tripping, crowd control was rank. Tear gas everyone downtown. What you did really stink. Legislation never made you judge and jury. Martial law now. Beat the kids down with no worry. Go and get your eye gear. Swing your girly all around. We'll be dancing on the cinders as the town is burning down.
It's not about freedom. It's don't let them lie to you. It's not about democracy. It is about control. song that's a bit much for me at the moment that was tolerance candle by uh neckbeard deathkin and before that officer by operation ivy thought i'd play some local music <sighs> okay got a little bit more here for you and then i'm going to play panel discussion about um stopping policing and next up there's a new org that folks can i don't know how new it is i shouldn't say that let me read a little bit more before I give them a qualifier, a qualifier, a quantifier. I'm a little bit, uh, all right. Okay, so there is um, a, an organization. I won't call them new. However, folks can find out about them. Oh, it's not new at all. What was I? Okay, maybe I'm thinking of something else. Okay. Well, there's an organization that folks can show up and participate with, and that's called the Tenant and Neighborhood Councils, and you can find them at TANC Bay. Tank is a member operated and founded autonomous tenants union in the greater Bay Area. We're fighting for a livable Bay Area down with the housing market. You can find them on Twitter at TANC Bay or through their website at baytanc.com forward slash sign up. And... All right. Um, perhaps they have, I had copied a thing here that said Tenant and Neighborhood Councils, which is their name. So I'm not sure the, well, that's an organization. I'm going to leave it at that and go on to the next uh, story. Got two more things to share before we start playing the panel discussion. And next thing here, oh, that's the San Quentin thing, which we read. All right, I'm going through all this. And next is from Anti-Police Terror Project, which is a great organization to support. You can follow them at APTP Action on Twitter. Hashtag defund OBD. Virtual town hall for community input on July 15th at 6 p.m. What needs to be defunded from police? What needs to be refunded by community? What alternative response models look like? Who should be on the transition team and how they should be appointed? And there's a Facebook invite the event i'm going to click on that now and if you go to defund opd virtual town hall for community input uh, it's an event that's was hosted shared by many people computers uh, having a bit of a rough time right now um, accessing the event however defund opd all one word virtual town hall for community input on july 15th you should be able to find that again 6 p.m to 8 p.m and it's an online event 
All right. Woo! Made it through. Um, okay. Um, all right. So next up, I'm going to play um, the panel discussion that I mentioned. Again, it was put forward by put forward put together by Haymarket Books. Let's go to the page. It's on. You can find it on YouTube. I'm gonna play. It's a little bit after one o'clock, so um, I'm gonna play a little bit of this, and then maybe some music, and then maybe do a little bit of the closing on the show. A big thanks to all the folks who are listening in. Really appreciate it. We do have a Patreon set up. Patreon.com forward slash Weekly Rev. Uh, if you'd like to donate, that's super awesome. You can also Venmo me. Uh, our Roman slash dot. Wait, what? Roman dash Weinman. Yeah, uh, whew, talking a lot. Okay. Follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. It's probably the best way to get in touch. And let's let's uh, start listening to this panel discussion. So again, you can find it on YouTube. It was put forward by – put forward. I don't know why I keep saying that. By Haymarket Books. Abolish policing, not just the police. And let's see – I'm going to go directly to the YouTube page so I can share more information about it. And it was streamed live 20 hours ago. And the description, join us for a discussion on abolishing the police and policing with Miriam Kaba, Maya Shenwar, and Victoria Law. And they also have a lot of other upcoming events that look great. So you can follow them on YouTube, Haymarket Books, subscribe as well so I'm going to unmute and get connected here and there we go all right so let's get started here and who have written an incredibly timely right, I'm issue rewind to the beginning in a little the bit Mia first part has just a little bit of an opening so Mia oh. there we go welcome everyone and thank you so much for joining us tonight from around the world I'm Miriam Kaba you'll notice that I'm Miriam Kaba because I'm not actually appearing on screen but I'm the founder and director of Project Mia, and I'm moderating today's conversation titled Abolish Policing, Not Just the Police. Before we get into the conversation with Maya and Vicky, I want to thank the organizer of this teach-in, Haymarket Books, and also the co-sponsors, The New Press and Truth Hour. It's really critical that we support independent publishers and independent bookstores all the time, but especially now. And you can do this in three ways. First, by buying books from Haymarket and buying our speakers' books directly from Labyrinth. Second, by joining the Haymarket Books Book Club. And third, if you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small via Venmo, there will be a card on screen about how to do this and folks posting that information in the YouTube chat as well. This video will be recorded and shared afterwards on the Haymarket Books YouTube channel so that you can 
look at it, listen to it, read it with captions that help um, <clears throat> forever. <laughs> Please subscribe to the channel, like this video now, and share it with as many people as possible. I want to let everyone know about three upcoming events in this live stream series. This weekend on July 4th, Haymarket Books is proud to co-sponsor the Socialism 2020 virtual conference featuring panels all day. More information about each event will be posted in the chat. On July 8th at 5 p.m. Eastern, please join Haymarket for a conversation on policing without the police, race, technology, and the new gym code with Dr. Ruha Benjamin and Dr. Dorothy Roberts. July 14th at 5 p.m. Eastern, please join a conversation on the end of Zionism, some thoughts and next steps with Ali Abunima, Philip Weiss, and Nada Elia. Um, you can register for these upcoming events on Eventbrite. So a few housekeeping items before we launch into our conversation. This chat is being moderated, but we can't guarantee that everyone will observe the community guidelines. People who violate the guidelines will have their comments deleted as quickly as moderators are available. For folks who want to follow the live chat, we suggest that you use the top chat option rather than live chat. With so many people joining this call, we may need your patience if we have technical issues. If your stream gets choppy, it might help to reduce the image quality. Haymarket will give instructions on how to do so. Feed is interrupted for any reason. Um, you may need to navigate back to the YouTube Haymarket Books page. The feed should resume there in case of interruption. We hope to have some time for Q&A, so please post your questions in the YouTube chat window, and we will hopefully get to those as in, uh, during the course of the program. So let's get on with it. Um, I'm really thrilled this evening to be in conversation with my friends Maya and Vicky, who have written an incredibly timely and valuable book titled Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. I had a chance to read a draft of this book and then was honored to be asked for a short blurb and I was, of course, late in getting to the actual blurb, but I'm just going to read what I offered. Beware of new Coke, the same product offered with new packaging. Prison by any other name sounds an alarm about the extension of the prison through, quote, alternatives to incarceration projects. It demonstrates that these, quote, alternatives continue the work of imprisonment in different ways. The book is an important addition to the new canon of work focused on mass criminalization in the U.S. It points us towards a way out of criminalization. Read this book. So that's my huge endorsement of the book. I'm so thrilled that it's come that it's available soon. Um, you can, I think, still pre-order it. I'm not sure what the date of release actually is, and so they'll let you know more about that. Um, as more people now are focused on the question of the police, this book really helps us to understand need to address that what we need to address is actually the broader question of policing, not just the police. Policing and law enforcement extend to family regulation through the child welfare system, 
the quote soft policing of probation, parole, um, really a hidden law enforcement army that surveils millions of people that we really barely actually pay attention to. Um, prison also is itself a police state. Um, police violence doesn't just occur on the streets, it also happens behind bars. And there's a push now for electronic monitoring and broader surveillance, and there'll be more of a conversation about the new gym code um, in the next, um, uh, one of the next uh, webinars that are gonna be offered. And so this book really does help us think through these questions of family regulation, of, of uh, electronic monitoring, and uh, you know, sex worker rescue programs, and a whole series of things that we don't often think about within the realm of surveillance and, and soft policing or just policing. And um, Vicky and Maya will be talking about these things and bringing those things to light um, in what they learned about through their research and their interviews and their you know, thinking about these issues. So this is really, really timely, I'm excited. So it's my pleasure to bring in Maya and Vicky at this point. Maya is gonna kick us off for five minutes and talk a little bit about why uh, they decided to write this book, a little bit about who they are, and a very short elevator speech kind of laying out what the book is about. Then Vicky's gonna come in and do the same thing. Um, then we're gonna move into really talking about four different areas um, of what we're gonna call for now soft policing. Um, child welfare, electronic monitoring, privatized policing and neighborhood watch, and school policing. And then we're gonna take a little moment, break, maybe get some water, and then come back and talk about quote-unquote unquote, alternatives, what the concept of alternatives to incarceration or you know uh, how people kind of spell that as an attempt to quote, replace the PIC. Um, they're gonna talk about mental health and psychiatric confinement, probation, sex worker rescue programs and drug courts. And then we're gonna take uh, some time to answer questions as we had time to do. So very excited to throw over to Maya. Maya, welcome, thanks for joining us. Thanks so thanks. much, Miriam. And thank you to everyone for coming to this. We really appreciate it, even though we can't see your faces. And also I apologize for my lackluster backdrop, the lack of a bookshelf behind me. This is the only place in my apartment where my toddler and cat won't find me. So anyway, I'm Maya Shenwar and I'm the editor in chief of Truth Out. I've been writing and editing about the prison industrial complex for about 15 years. And I'm also involved in prison abolitionist organizing efforts. I organize with the collective Love and Protect in Chicago, and I'm on the board of the Chicago Community Bond Fund. I'll talk for a minute about how we came to write Prison by Any Other Name. So for me, this was partly a result of talking with incarcerated friends and interviewing people for my last book and realizing that even when people got out of prison, they were still engulfed in all kinds of systems of control and surveillance that were built on the same foundations of white supremacy and capitalism. So the problem was not incarceration alone 
or police alone. It was this vast system of racial and social control with many, many tentacles. And some of those tentacles might look kind and gentle to an outside observer, but they still often manifest as brutal punishment for those who are experiencing them. And a lot of these practices like electronic monitoring and drug courts and sex worker rescue programs were put forth as improvements and reforms when really they were just rebuilding the old systems with a softer image and extending them to wider and wider groups of people. So our book is about how popular reforms often take the shape of expansion, bringing the prison industrial complex into homes and schools and communities so that more and more people are brought into its clutches, particularly black and brown people, trans and non-binary people, disabled people, sex workers, drug users, and other marginalized groups. In a recent talk that Angela Davis did, she said, we're trapped on a treadmill of reform. And I think that Vicki and I wrote Prison by Any Other Name to provide a resource for people to understand that we must get off that treadmill. And for me, there was also a personal motivation driving me toward this subject. And I know there also was for Vicki and she'll talk about that. But for me, for the past 15 years, my sister, Keely, had been in and out of jail and prison and various alternatives that are products of reform, like electronic monitoring, mandated drug treatment, and probation. And she was addicted to heroin. And every time she went to jail or prison, she was deeply traumatized, as happens in jail and prison. And she sank deeper and deeper into her addiction when she got out. And meanwhile, she wasn't ever really released when she got out. The courts swept her into all kinds of systems of surveillance and confinement, which were said to be for her own good, to help her with her addiction. But really, they were harsh, abstinence-only punishments. And if she violated their strict conditions, then she got sent back to prison. So she kept being sent back. And this is the main way that I came to be interested in this alternative thing, these reforms that look so much like incarceration. Along with jail and prison and addiction itself, they were helping to destroy my sister's life and, of course, deeply impacting my life as someone who loved her. And Keely actually died four months ago, four and a half months ago, of an overdose while she was in a mandated abstinence-only drug treatment program, and she was also on probation. And her death happened after we finished writing Prison by Any Other Name. She's in the book's acknowledgement section, and I was fully expecting her to read the book and then force every single person she knew to read the book like she did with my first one. So one of the main motivations in talking about these issues right now for me is because I know that Keely would want me to be speaking out about the systems that led to her death. And I was hoping that when this book came out, she would be able to do some talks with us in Chicago. She wanted to speak out about these systems more fully herself once she was finally released from them. But 
since she was only released um, in death, I feel a responsibility to talk about these extensions of the prison industrial complex as part of her legacy. So that's where I'm coming from right now. Thank you so much, Maya. Thank you for sharing, but also thank you for being vulnerable um, and sharing personally about how this has an impact on you. Um, I was lucky enough to know Keely and nobody who met her, um, she was extraordinary. Um, and this book uh, is part of the legacy of her life. And so we're just so grateful um, that you both wrote this and we're so grateful that her life continues. So thank you for sharing. Um, Vicki. Thank you, Maya, and thank you, Mariam. Um, so I came to this book, well, first of all, my name is Vicki. I am a journalist that focuses on incarceration and criminalization, particularly around women's criminalization and incarceration. I'm also the co-founder of Books Through Bars New York City. I co-founded that uh, actually while I was on probation, come to think of it. So um, I guess I'll give a little bit of my backstory that kind of grounds this and also shows the ways in which uh, these popularly proposed alternatives actually widen the carceral net, but also rack lives. So going back to when I was in high school, I went to what was known, or what we now know as a school to prison pipeline school, which we were going to talk about later. But at the time we didn't have any such terminology. All we knew is it was, it was a school that was mostly black, brown, and immigrant. It was low-income families that didn't have resources, didn't have opportunities, and didn't know that what you were supposed to do is borrow the address of somebody who lives in a better neighborhood so that you could send your kids to a school with more resources and more opportunities. And this was the perfect recruiting ground for many of the gangs of New York City at the time. And my friends got recruited and they joined gangs, they dropped out of high school, and they eventually got arrested for gang-related activities. And at one point I got swept up into this nonsense and I got arrested for armed robbery. Now, those of you who might see me in person might think that this is actually, you can't tell, uh, kind of amusing because I am five feet and at the time I got arrested, I probably was maybe 80 pounds soaking wet. Uh, and I talk about this because when I went before the judge, the stereotypes around who is violent and dangerous and who is not definitely came into play. So I was ultimately sentenced to probation and then it was a very different type of probation than Maya's sister was sentenced to. There was no, the technology had not evolved to put people on electronic shackles, put people under monitoring. I was basically left to my own devices. I had to check in once a month. I was told I would be drug tested. Nobody ever bothered. Um, and so I bring this up to say that like, I was under this alternative for a crime that is considered violent. Like I had a gun, I stuck it in somebody's face. I probably deeply traumatized somebody, if not somebody's who were there. And again, because of the stereotypes we have around who is dangerous, who is a threat to public safety and who is not small Asian people uh, and small Asian women, I was given what we now think of as an alternative to incarceration. 
And I say this to say that prison was not the answer for a crime involving violence. And as we'll talk about later, we'll also see that some of these popularly proposed alternatives are not actually what we need to address what people need for safety, for survival, and to be able to thrive in society. Thank you so much, Vicki. Um, so I just want to take us off. We're going to be talking about so-called soft policing in various ways. I don't um, terminology, but I'm definitely uh, interested in using the ideas behind it, which ask us the question, is are cops the only people who do the work of policing? Um, you know, is that is that the case? And um, people may be seeing a image on the screen from a short kind of uh, Instagram story set of comics that we made at Project Mia about that concept of uh, soft policing. Thanks to Brendan McQuaid for a lot of ideas that came to bear for that. Um, and uh, also Flynn Nichols for doing that comic. Um, we'll put that, I guess I'll get a, a link to it so it can be in the chat so other people can use it as well. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that. Are cops the only people who do policing? Let's kick off with mm -hmm. talking about the child welfare system or family regulation system. Great. Thank you, Miriam. So this is one very prominent realm of soft policing, the so-called child welfare system or family regulation system more accurately. In a recent article for the Chronicle of Social Change, Dorothy Roberts points out that some calls for defunding the police have suggested diverting money to health and human services departments. And she notes that these departments generally contain child protective services and foster care, which themselves tend to be institutions of control and surveillance. Child Protective Services holds what the Movement for Family Power called in a recent report, the greatest power a state can exercise over its people, the power to forcibly take children away from parents and permanently sever parent-child relationships. The violence of invasive home investigation and child removal is often overlooked because it primarily targets Black women, Native women, and women who are living in poverty. 23% of foster youth in 2016 were Black, although Black children make up a little over 14% of the U.S.'s child population. And the majority of Black youth in the country have been subjected to a Child Protective Services investigation. This system also intensively targets mothers who are drug users. The Movement for Family Power points out that the so-called child welfare system is another front in the war on drugs, operating based on medically disproven and racist myths about drug use. And it targets survivors of domestic violence. In our book, we share the story of a mother of four who called a domestic violence hotline for help. And a few days later, her kids were taken and she was told to get safe, but she was given no support for doing that. So now she lives at a homeless shelter and sees her children for two hours per week during supervised visits. Most reports to Child Protective Services are not for abuse, they're for neglect. And what 
quote-unquote neglect often looks like in practice is poverty. As Charity Tolliver and Erica Miners write, poverty and assessments of neglect are intertwined. So not having sufficient clothing or food for your kids is considered neglect. More than two kids sharing a bedroom can qualify as neglect. But instead of providing people with material support to address these issues, Child Protective Services tends to just investigate families and remove children, which is a form of violent punishment. And it's not just punishment for parents. It's also punishment for children. Study after study shows that on average, even children who are actually maltreated tend to fare better when left at home, as opposed to those who are placed in foster care. And I want to recommend taking a look at the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform for some of this research. LGBTQ youth of color face particular dangers within the system. And plus, there's the foster care to prison pipeline, which Char Charity Tolliver and others have documented extensively. Studies in some states have even shown that the majority of incarcerated youth have had some contact with Child Protective Services. A tiny bit of history. The foster system has expanded as incarceration has expanded, what we talk about as mass incarceration, over the last several decades. And during that time, as it was expanding, it came to focus more and more on Black and Native families. And as it did, it increasingly removed children from their homes. So in other words, it became more violent, more punitive. And in many ways, the child welfare system replicates the patterns of slavery. I'd suggest reading basically all of Dorothy Roberts' work on this topic. The system functions on an assumption that taking black children away from their mothers and caregivers is justified. And the system is also a legacy of indigenous genocide which has always depended on the idea that Native children should be assimilated into white culture. We see states like Alaska right now where the majority of foster children are Native, even though just 18% of children in the state are Native. When we talk about self-policing in the context of the child welfare system, we need to talk about who is doing that policing. How are people getting swept in and captured? And part of the answer lies in the practice of mandatory reporting. Doctors, nurses, social workers, teachers are now generally required by law to report parents or caregivers to Child Protective Services if they see any reason to suspect abuse or neglect. And of course, that's a very subjective judgment that is tied up with race, class, gender, disability. Over the past 50 years, mandatory reporting laws have sprung up in every state, and they've grown increasingly stringent to the point that now in 18 states, everyone is a mandatory reporter, and more states are considering these laws. So in many places, you are a mandatory reporter, regardless of your job. You are tasked with policing the parenting of your neighbors and friends and family members. As these systems grow, we're now seeing 37% of children in the U.S. experience
experiencing a child protective services investigation by the time they're 18. And for black children, that's 53%. And meanwhile, mandatory reporting makes child survivors of violence less likely to seek help because they're scared that what they share will be reported, understandably. Mandated reporting also makes parents less likely to seek help with housing and other resources. So instead of supporting children and families in finding safety and well-being, them, traumatizing them, and inflicting the violence of separation. There's no question this is a form of policing. I want to quickly mention that a growing movement is taking these issues on. With the movement has been particularly initiated by Black mothers who've been impacted by the system. And for more information, you can look to the Movement for Family Power, DHS Give Us Back Our Children, Welfare Warriors, Black on Both Sides, and Families Organizing for Child Welfare Justice. And check out the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform for additional resources. Thank you, Maya. I'm jumping in because our moderator has some technical difficulties. Um, another form of softer policing and imprisonment is one that's gained more attention in recent months, um, electronic monitoring, which if you think about the fact that many of us are emerging from shelter at home and staying at home all the time, you might think about the, you know, the ways in which you have felt confined to your house you know, and not being able to leave and having restrictions on where you can go and when you can go. So electronic monitoring is, first of all, a form of surveillance. It's usually in the form of a box and a GPS device that is shackled to somebody's ankle. It is large. Um, it is very noticeable. But even if it was small and not that noticeable, its point is coercive control and surveillance. It is not a fashion accessory. Um, it is usually accompanied by house arrest which tells you where you can go and what you can do and where you cannot go and what you cannot do. And it is not the same as shelter at home at all. It is, you have to get permission in advance, usually one week in advance, sometimes more, to be able to go someplace outside of your house. So there have been people who, uh, so usually it means that if you want to go grocery shopping, you have to apply in advance and give your probation officer or your electronic monitoring officer a list of places that you want to go for the coming week. It would be, uh, say you wanted to go grocery shopping and you would have to say what stores you were going to go to and at what time you were gonna to go to them. So if you were going to go to the Kroger, you may, and they don't have toilet paper because everybody has bought the toilet paper in the coronavirus pandemic, you are unable to go to the next store and see if you could get toilet paper at the store half a mile away, because that would be a violation of your electronic monitoring. Um, you need pre-approval to go to medical care. So especially during a pandemic in which you are advised to go seek medical care, if you are not feeling well, this could mean the difference between you saying, I'm going to seek potentially life-saving medical care and risk being sent back to jail or to prison for violating the terms of my electronic monitoring, or I, you know, will just stay at home and hope that maybe this is just a cold or just the flu and not something more serious that I will spread to everybody in my family. Um, 
for people who are parents and caregivers, they often have to ask for permission to pick their children up from school, which is usually allowed, but maybe going to see their child's basketball game or school play would not be allowed. And then there's just the fact that you cannot leave your house or you cannot leave past a certain distance from your house. We've talked to people who are able to walk their dog on the sidewalk right outside their house, but are unable to cross the street. So, uh, because that would be a violation of the amount of space that they are allowed to leave. Uh, we have talked to people who live in apartment complexes that cannot go down the hallway to throw out the garbage because that hallway, that garbage chute is too far away from their front door to be allowed. They cannot do the laundry downstairs in the building's laundry room because that is too far away. So it also then puts the onus on everybody else in the family to uh, to come together and support that person. And they are unable to be a contributing member of their family or community in a way that they would be if they were not shackled to this electronic monitor. But electronic monitoring is posited as a kinder, gentler form of coercive control uh, than being in a brick and mortar jail or prison or immigrant detention center. And that is true. Most, most but not all people, have said they would rather be at home uh, where you can go to your refrigerator and take whatever food you were able to buy out of your refrigerator at any given time. You don't have, you aren't told when you need to get up, when you need to make your bed, or told to sit up on your bed and recite your state ID number three times a day. Um, you are, you know, you have certain bodily autonomy that you do not have in prisons. But we have to remember that there's still lots of restrictions and limitations with the constant threat of being sent back to prison if you violate any of these rules. Uh, there are approximately 200,000 people on electronic monitoring, and we say approximately because there is actually no organization or agency or government entity that keeps statistics on this. So it's basically like pulling from, you know, this, this state has this many, this jurisdiction has this many, and these numbers are always changing. What we also have to remember is that Electronic monitoring, like many reforms, has actually widened the net. When we think about prisons, prisons themselves were a reform uh, against the punishment of floggings and beatings and being hung for, uh, for relatively minor actions. Uh, and electronic monitoring widens the net. So people who might not otherwise be jailed or imprisoned or might be released uh, from jail or prison or might not be charged or have their charges dismissed are now being released on electronic monitoring instead. Uh, before we wrote this book, before coronavirus hit, and one of the people that we interviewed was a woman in a small town in the Midwest whose crime was kind of an odd one. She and her friend had an open door policy in their small town. They were able to go in or out of each other's houses at will, even if the other person wasn't home. And one day the woman left her medications at her friend's house and she needed her medication. So she went to her friend's house and the door was locked. So she climbed in through the bathroom and the cops were called and she was arrested and she was charged with burglary because she had broken into this locked house. And it didn't matter that this was her best friend's house. It didn't matter that they usually had an open door policy. It, none of these things mattered. And she was offered the choice of going to trial and possibly facing 10 years in prison or 
going on electronic monitoring, which would enable her to stay home with her five children, and she would be able to, uh, she would be able to, you know, be with her children, tuck her baby into bed. Uh, she was also pregnant at the time, and this comes into play later because so she agreed to electronic monitoring because she thought this was a much better scenario. And what she didn't count on was the fact that there were fines and fees attached to the electronic monitor. So every month, she and her husband had to pay a set amount of money to, for her electronic monitor. And part of the condition of her sentence was that she had to have all of this paid in full before she was able to be released from electronic monitoring. And they scrimped, they saved, they did what they could. She was not able to get work because of the fact that she had a big honking electronic monitor around her ankle. Uh, they had uh, kids and they had to save for them. So he was the sole person who was able to work. They were not able to always pay the full amount, so they fell behind. And when it was time for her to be released from electronic monitoring, she was told that no, she could not be released until the fines and fees had all been paid. So her electronic monitoring extended indefinitely. And with each month that it extended, another month's worth of fines and fees piled up. And so it became a, you know, a, a dog pile that she just couldn't get out from under. And she finally did. But this was several years after her original sentence was supposed to have ended. We've heard from other people who have been told that if they did not pay in full by the time their sentence was finished, they would be sent back to jail or to prison. And then upon release, they would still be uh, responsible for paying these fines and fees. So we see how people who otherwise might not be jailed or imprisoned are being saddled with electronic monitoring, being confined to their homes, being unable to be with their families, and then also uh, being saddled with uh, fines and fees that basically sink their family. In Chicago, uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, we see that Chicago now has the largest pretrial population under electronic monitoring. It has over 3,100 people on electronic monitoring. Chicago's Cook County Jail became one of the epicenters of coronavirus very early on, and judges began ordering people to be released from the jail so that they wouldn't get coronavirus in these very packed, small, uh, jail cells where it was impossible to social distance, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, and all the things that the CDC recommends. But instead of just saying, let them go, the judges said, okay, you can get out, but we're going to put you on an electronic monitor. And what ended up happening was the Cook County Sheriff's Office, which runs the jail, ran out of monitors, which then meant that people were just sitting in these coronavirus-filled jails, even after a judge said to let them go, because they were not devices to clamp onto their ankles so that they could go to their homes where presumably they would be at least able to social distance, wash their hands, and use hand sanitizer. The same thing happened in Milwaukee, and we can you know, assume that the same thing happened in various places around the country. And then in addition, we're seeing that electronic monitoring has also been used for what's known as civil confinement or immigrant detention. Um, with the advent of electronic monitoring, uh, ICE has used electronic monitoring to release people from immigrant detention. 
And in the past, they used to release people under what was an alternatives program where they were not shackled, they were not put on any sort of coercive control and confinement and supervision. But now, because we have this technology, approximately 38,000 to 40,000 people who would have been released from detention without these stipulations earlier uh, would are now under ICE custody on electronic monitoring. And it has not decreased the number of people in the physical immigration detention centers. Uh, last year, ICE detained an average of over 50,000 people in its immigration detention centers, the, a record high, and at times more than 56,000 people were in detention. So as we can see, this has not actually done anything to reduce the number of people who are confined in some way, and instead it is just widen the net so that you have 38,000 to 40,000 people in the community, but under supervision, and then another 50,000 something inside these physical buildings. Uh, so I'm going to stop here. If you want to know more, there's a, a group called Challenging E-Carceration that has been doing phenomenal work looking at uh, electronic monitoring as this softer, kinder, gentler type of confinement and imprisonment and challenging the, um, and challenging these policies when they come up on the state and local level. Thanks, Vicki. Um, you all can hear me, right? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so just uh, wanted to follow up on one thing that you mentioned about the fines and fees. You know, when we were working on um, trying to make sure that Marissa Alexander could be free. Um, one of the aspects of when they re finally released her was that she was released on an uh, ankle monitor or what ankle bracelet or ankle shackle um, more more realistically. Um, and you know, just the cost of that every you know month plus the cost of the probation, which I know you're going to talk about later, every couple of weeks was just exponentially uh, you know burdensome. And for people who can't work while they're on ankle monitoring, this is another form of kind of debt peonage, uh, a way where people start to become completely overwhelmed by mm -hmm. the cost of their own incarceration in their own mm -hmm. home. Um, and I just, you know, I, I'm wondering, did you all find any numbers about the average cost that uh, people are forced to pay to be on ankle shackles? Did you like? Because I don't. I think I had seen a number somewhere before, which was something like an average of four hundred dollars a month for um, ankle shackles, and that's obviously the average. So there's some that's higher and some that's lower. But I just think like for people to think about the extra amount that you're going to have to come up with when you don't already have a job and you're already criminalized, it's just a, it's just a never-ending cycle of uh, imprisonment, you know. Um, but anyway, I'm. Um, Maya, you're going to be talking next a little bit about private policing. Yeah. Neighborhood Watch also. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So thank you, Vicki and Miriam. I think one of the things that we're seeing with reforms like electronic monitoring is that there are conservatives and libertarians jumping on board and saying, yes, less public funding make people pay for their own confinement. Uh -huh. But obviously, don't get rid of confinement, right? Don't get uh -huh. rid of policing. And now we're seeing some libertarian voices saying, okay, instead of defunding the police, how about making them part of the marketplace? So 
I'm going to say a few words about privatized policing and then neighborhood watch, as you mentioned. So authorities and pundits are now lifting up this private police thing as the obvious alternative to public police amid these calls to defund departments. Reason magazine recently featured the headline, professionalizing police hasn't worked, try privatizing instead. Right now, there are actually already more private security guards in the United States than there are police. And after uprisings took off in Chicago early last month, the city allocated over a million dollars to hire private security guards to patrol the south and west sides, saying that they were preventing looting. In New York, amid the uprising, some communities hired private security firms as well. The University of Minnesota isn't using police now, but instead they're using private security for things like football games. Last month, Worth Magazine, which is a financial and wealth management magazine, published an article by the CEO of a company called Hawk, a security company, which was weirdly echoing calls to defund the police and ostensibly supporting protesters and then proposing private security as the solution. And meanwhile, United Security, which is a private security firm that's active in New York, told the Wall Street Journal last month that, this is a quote, demand for armed and unarmed security guards across every market is as high as it's ever been. So you might think, well, at least private security guards aren't violent like the police because we don't hear about that in the news. But as Candace Byrne reported for Truthout and others have reported, when private armed guards commit acts of violence, like shooting people, those acts are often not reported, let alone investigated. And these companies also often employ cops and prison guards after they've been fired for doing something mm -hmm. violent. There was a USA Today investigation that found that the massive private security company G4S was deploying a number of guards who had raped and assaulted and shot people, including on duty. And in fact, it was a G4S guard who killed 49 people and wounded 53 more at Orlando's Pulse nightclub. So private police are police, and we have to watch out for proposals to replace police with themselves. Mm. Another possible area of expansion in the current climate is the concept of a neighborhood watch. Right now, neighborhood watch is a practice that's often really closely associated with community policing that's based in police departments. There are definitely abolitionist and mutual aid-based ways to cultivate vigilance and watch out for each other, whether you want to call it community watch or something else. And that's obviously fantastic and is, of course, something that needs to be happening more. But we also have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of neighborhood watch programs around the country are facilitated by and collaborate with police departments. Mm -hmm. And they're effectively acting as an extension of those departments. And 
they can sometimes be done cheaply because they rely on these vigilante volunteers. So the way this works is that police and other authorities recruit community members to be their quote unquote eyes and ears. And this often means seeking out older people, people with more money, property owners, people who authorities are less likely to be targeting to watch their neighbors and call the cops whenever, whenever they're um, suspicious of anything. And in a mixed race neighborhood, this is about cops mobilizing white people to call the police on their black and brown neighbors. Josmar Trujillo, um, an organizer in New York, says in our book, in relation to New York's so-called neighborhood policing meetings, they're using the community to tell on the community. And that's kind of the heart of these programs. And of course, in this model, it's the police or whatever state authority is in charge who decide who the community is and who is supposed to be harassed and targeted. So for example, in the police definition, gang members are always framed as not part of the community. So this idea of mobilizing people to surveil their neighbors isn't just about calling the police. It can also actually incite vigilante violence. George Zimmerman was a neighborhood watch volunteer when he murdered Trayvon Martin. We need to be wary of local officials looking to expand neighborhood watch programs that are grounded in policing principles. And I think we even need to be wary of our neighbors trying to expand these types of programs. When we talk about the recruitment of volunteer civilians to be the eyes and ears of the police, that goes way back. It goes back to the origins of US policing. Volunteers served on slave patrols to capture enslaved black people who were perceived as fleeing. In the North, as early as the 17th century, there were formalized night watches in places like Boston. And there were volunteers who were enlisted to roam the street looking for people involved in sex work or other practices that were seen as deviant. You can read Christian Williams and Alex Vitale for, for more on that. And these volunteer operations also played a role in indigenous genocide in this country, including the Texas Rangers, who killed Native people and Mexican Americans as part of a volunteer vigilante effort by white colonizers. So this type of thing is older than the country itself. And I think sometimes this idea of volunteers gets lifted up as kind of like a wholesome, organic, community-based mechanism that's automatically safer. And I think we need to question that. We need to look at how neighborhood watches gathered steam in the 1960s and 70s because police were mobilizing white people and other community members to gain legitimacy amid the black power movement. So they were you know, actually seeking out people to do their work and inciting people in this way that pushed back against uprisings, that pushed back against resistance. So nowadays, I think we have to look at how neighborhood associations and Facebook groups are actually intensifying this mentality of becoming the eyes and ears of the police. 
you see neighbors communicating all the time about alleged threats and dangers, cultivating this culture of fear. And often they're doing, show, they're doing so according to their own racialized logic in deciding who's dangerous. You see this all the time if you're part of any neighborhood Facebook page, I think. And even in my neighborhood that's supposedly like one of the most progressive and diverse, people are always saying, oh, was that a firework or a gunshot? I think I'm gonna call the police. You know, so these are some of the so-called policing alternatives that we need to be conscious of as we continue this crucial demand to defund police departments. Thank you very much, Maya. I think um, people might be interested. A few years ago, uh, We Charge Genocide uh, put out a report called the Counter Cap Community Alternative Policing uh, Systems uh, Report, which was to talk about the community engagement arm of the police state a kind of counterinsurgency almost within our neighborhoods where the cops were deputizing, quote, these neighbors and volunteers to do policing work uh-huh. that they either didn't want to do or that they actually felt like was feeding into the work that they actually wanted to do in the community. Mm-hmm. And what we ended up finding in that report was that the people who were most mobilized to be those volunteers were the, quote, property owners within the community, again, protection of property, right? Something we know is integrally important to the rise of the police in the United States, um, along with the other kinds of uh, roots of police and the formation of policing. Um, So I think, you know, I think the points that you make in the book about this really will make people start to think differently. Um, And then there's also a great, uh, I just found a great resource that was uh, made by folks in Minneapolis that asked folks to think about those people who are doing neighborhood watch to think about the ways in which the logics that they are employing replicate the police Uh and to to think differently about their neighbors. So kind of an intervention around this idea of, uh, you know, kind of community policing at its most uh, violent, frankly, uh, and trying to make that something different instead. So thank you for bringing that up for sure. Uh, Vicki, you want to talk a little bit about uh, community uh, school-based policing, but maybe also answering the question about what well, that I had asked about the electronic monitoring costs. Okay, uh, difficult to stop in at this moment. However, we are approaching 2 p.m., so the show weekly review coming to an end for this week. You are. I encourage folks to listen and or watch the rest of this. It is called Abolish Policing, Not Just the Police. It was put together through Haymarket Books, and you can find it on YouTube. Big thanks to folks for tuning in and all the folks out there doing the best to create a world that is safe and healthy for absolutely everybody and believing a better world is possible. I'm going to end with uh, uh, some Joan Baez because I feel like that's that's kind of what I'm in the mood for right now. This is a song called Diamonds and Rust. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much again for tuning in and have a great week, everybody.
我爱。